A surprising hit movie in 2023 called The Sound of Freedom was about international child sex trafficking. It featured a former Homeland Security official who discovered a sex trafficking ring in the line of his work, and he committed to freeing children caught up in it. According to UNICEF, the United States is one of the top destination points for victims of child sex trafficking and exploitation. Joining us to talk further is Dr. Jean Allert, the executive director of the Institute for Shelter Care, which equips Christian ministries with the knowledge, skills, tools, and community needed to provide exemplary restorative care to the sexually exploited. She's a former high school English teacher, member of the Department of Homeland Security Blue Campaign, a graduate of the FBI Citizens Academy, and a human trafficking contributor for the National Advisory Council for the Conference on Crimes Against Women. Jean, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters program. Thank you. Jean, I'd like to uh, start with the surprise hit movie, as I just mentioned, uh, The Sound of Freedom. My wife and I just watched this the other day, and uh, quite frankly, it's jarring. Uh, it's about uh, former Homeland Security official Tim Ballard, who stumbled upon a predatory child sex trafficking ring. And in it, it showed clips of children being snatched up on the streets in Central American countries. And the whole movie is gripping. Uh, it's based on a true story. What I was curious about was, and one of the things I learned about as well, was that that's really not the typical way that children are brought into child sex trafficking. As, as alarming and as graphic and jarring as that is of kids being snatched from the streets of Central American cities, that's not really how most kids get involved with child sex trafficking, is it? No, it's not. But I will say that our movement is helped by films like Sound of Freedom, or if you go back a handful of years, the movie Taken, which helped to bring this issue to the public consciousness. Um, but there is, we have to understand, a healthy dose of Hollywood uh, to the way the stories are told. What we, as we begin to be inspired and we say, okay, well, now my heart is pricked for the issue. Now let me engage my mind to better understand what it looks like. Domestically, what we see is that the number one form of recruitment in the United States is a relational connection. Uh, sometimes called the boyfriend method. But we have to understand that there are kids and women who have um, relational voids, um, fatherlessness, uh, romantic voids, uh, caregiver voids, and there are predatory individuals who will step into that void. So that's the number one most common form of recruitment. Um, and that speaks a lot to what we understand about sexual violence in general is that 70% or more of that is conducted by persons that the victim knows. And I want to talk a little bit more about the family connection to child sex trafficking, particularly in this country. But going back to The Sound of Freedom, it was uh, surprising in that it was the ninth highest grossing film at the box office last year. It took in about a quarter billion dollars, which was eye-opening. And this did bring light to a very dark area brought light to the reality that child sex trafficking happens, not just internationally, but here. One of the most difficult things for me to watch in that movie, and just a word of caution to the listeners and viewers of this program, that that is a movie that will shake you. There's some things, and it was not, I think it was a PG-13, but just the whole idea that there's a market for children um, that there's a pedophile, very active pedophile community, particularly in this country, and how children were used is particularly dark, 
and um, just disturbing. So I caution any of the listeners and viewers that it is, it's not something for the lighthearted. However, with that said, it did do a service to bringing light into the reality of what's going on. And Gene, my question is, as much as this was an eye-opening movie, what was challenging was just to, to see that there is a market and there's demand in this country pedophiles who are specifically looking for certain kinds of children. That was the other part. It was like people, these young children were staged just like, like cattle at an auction. And that disturbed me to my core. I had a hard time getting my mind around it, but just that there's a market for that. So how do we get to this place? I want to start with that. How do we get to this place? We're the wealthiest, freest, most prosperous country in the history of the world. And yet there is this market for deep and sick perversion like this. How do we even get here? Because this does not happen in a vacuum, does it? No. And it's oversimplification to say we're talking about sin, right? And we're talking about the sin that lies in the hearts of mankind. Um, I think what's important to also understand from a psychological perspective is um, that this is not exclusively about sex. This is about power. This is about domination. Um, there are other needs being satisfied and other, let's say, sinful desires that are being satisfied in these acts. And it can be, as one psychologist has written, um, that the perpetration against children, the motivation is the deflowering of the child, that the, um, the appetite is for the destruction of innocence. And so that, that is another element that we just as Christians have to hold on to, that there are people for whom that is their perversion. We also have to look intelligently at the sexual assault and child sexual assault data that the typical, unfortunately, perpetrator against children will have multiple victims, upwards of 300 victims, because the satisfaction is not derived necessarily in the sexual act, but it is in the power and control dynamic of the grooming process. So we have to understand that somebody who perpetrates particularly against children, but I would say vulnerable people in general, of which children are at the top of the pyramid of vulnerability, is there is that perverse satisfaction in having dominated uh, someone else. And so that's another element that is so important for us to not get too caught up in the sexual side of it, but we have to understand the both and uh, in terms of the motivation. Now, we also unfortunately have to hold simultaneously what's happening in our nation right now with the abject sexualization of children that we have, as you've discussed in other forums, um, the sexualization of children as young as kindergartners, whether that's through the media, the, the content, their schools, um, and all of those other forces that are bearing down to them. And that is, as perpetrators will say, doing half of the work for me. And so if I have a child who by the age of eight has already been molested in the home, she's already been exposed to pornography continuously, she's in a school system where she's being told that you know, you're a moneymaker and you should work it and you have to take care of yourself because the adults aren't doing it. Well, by the time she's 12, 14 years of age, it's a not a foregone conclusion, but it's a natural progression. 
Yeah, I had a meeting along these lines of um, shaping the minds of our children and the expectations of our children. Met with somebody yesterday, concerned citizen in the Lexington area, who learned that a new middle school that's under construction right now is going to have gender neutral bathrooms. This is where uh, young, we're talking 11 to 14 year old children, boys and girls will be going into the same restroom area. The stalls are individual. But when did this become normal and okay, where you have boys and girls going into the stalls? And by the way, each of the stalls will have sanitary items for the young girls. I don't know what young boys, they don't know anything at that age anyway, but what are they supposed to do with that? To your point, this creates to the sexual confusion. There's the blurring of lines between male and female. And we're in the middle of a culture of sexual confusion and with identity issues. So, so, Gene, I wanted to go back to this idea that this did not happen in a vacuum. I have made the case before that a culture that is awash in pornography and that objectifies women for their sexuality, uh, it doesn't just end there, but it, there's, there is a trajectory. Uh, there, it leads to other things. Can, can we make a case? I mean, is this, is this where we end up when you normalize the objectification of women for their sexuality, when you market lust to men, when when there's no moral or sexual boundaries anymore in a society? Is this the logical conclusion? Well, almost flippantly, I could say, what else did we expect to happen? But not so flippantly. We know this to be true biologically. We know that our physiology as humans, we plateau. Right. So if you take something like substance abuse and you talk about, oh, it's just marijuana, but marijuana at some point doesn't satisfy, we begin to acclimate to that level of substance. And so for many substance abusers, there is a continuing progression. I have to have more either increased or rapidity or severity. And so we see that physiologically with the things that are harmful to us is that we have to increase. We've seen that certainly with pornography. You know, in your and my lifetime, something that would be scandalous would be Lucy and Desi Arnaz, you know, in the same bed on TV. That was scandalous as a married couple. We have moved so far from that because each time in a sociological way, we accept something, we begin to set that as the new threshold. And so then we have to to get the next shock value, to get the next pleasure dopamine rush, to get the next sensory perception, we have to increase. And so we've just seen this happen with the sexualization of women and children in particular. And now we're seeing the normalization of transgenderism. I think of one of the top shows last year, and whatever category it was, but it was RuPaul's Drag Race. It's about people dressing in drag. And and here in Kentucky, I want to bring this to the state. You have drag shows that are coming to public areas. Um, in Bowling Green last year, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, there were drag queens who were using a public park at, during the middle of the day. I think of Owensboro, where there is a bar. It's, it's a quasi-public, private space uh, subsidized by local government. And it's a place where drag shows are done regularly. Um, So we see this normalization, to your point, about a progression where if you plateau, if you don't get your fix, you need something else. 
And it seems that uh, not only is it with gender dysphoria, but as we're talking about with pedophilia and then the marketing of children, I think of uh, one of the top stories in the news right now is Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, his uh, island, and they were trafficking in children. And there's this list that's going to be released soon. By the time this program airs, maybe we'll know some of the people on this list who are purported to be involved with that. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, Gene, uh, as you think about this, and as we talk about this progression, outrage has a shelf life. Now, I'm outraged and I'm shook and shaken just talking about this. But at what point uh, do we just, we lose the outrage and we're like, yeah, that's just normal, or this is just to be expected. And so, you know, I, I, I'm thinking right now of the people trying to talk this away, trying to explain it away. Well, it's not everybody, but it's some people. But the bottom line is we should be outraged and we should be moved when you talk about the level of evil and what's at stake here. How do we harness that outrage? How do we harness this, this moment that we're in as Christians in particular? And, and what do we do with that? Yeah, I don't have the silver bullet answer to that, but I'm reminded of a police officer who had said to me um, back when I was in the Washington, D.C. area, um, and we were trying to wake up the Northern Virginia community in particular. And so think uh, affluent community who is in their comfort uh, and thinks that it doesn't happen within that area because they've sort of bought into that distancing narrative that, oh, that must be poverty situations or substance abuse or broken families or whatever it is that we use to distance ourselves from the problem. And this officer said, you know, the best thing that could happen to that community would be for them to have uh, an actual case in their community that rocks their world. Well, almost prophetically, within about a year, um, the Northern Virginia area had a, a case of a sex trafficking ring that was gang related, that was uh, taking girls out of very affluent high schools. I mean, these were girls, daddy's buying her a BMW for graduation. So we're, we're talking about the population you don't naturally assume. Uh, and they were being picked up after school taken to motels, taken to strip malls, taken to locations. They were servicing customers uh, and then being returned to their homes in the evening. And this went on for over a three-year period. There were over 800 girls that had been exploited over that period of time. Now, that particular case rocked that community's world. And that was the jarring effect, the catalytic moment, if you will, that made them say, we've got to do something. And it also moved politically And after that particular incident or the awareness of that case that had gone unnoticed, um, the the state government really stepped up and Virginia radically changed their anti-trafficking laws, their child protection laws. They became one of the more strident in the nation. So unfortunately, my answer to you, Richard, is what we have seen nationally is when there is something that literally hits close to home. And that's where movies like Sound of Freedom and Taken can unfortunately do a disservice because we can quickly say that's an over there problem. So I want to go back to what we do know domestically. Um, My area of, of particular focus on this issue has been familial trafficking, as you introduced. 
And so we did a national study uh, to find out what is the prevalence of familial trafficking. And for your listeners' benefit, that is a subtype of sexual exploitation where the perpetrator is related to the victim, uh, usually an immediate family member. And this national data, which collected over 3,500 cases of child sex trafficking, found that anywhere between 26 to 47 percent of those child trafficking cases were at the hands of a caregiver, a family member. And that's legally defined as usually parent, step-parent, grandparent. And so within that child's immediate sphere of care, the uh, perpetrator most often from 60 to 68% was the biological mother. And the most common motive for a biological mother, we'll use the generalities, uh, for selling her child uh, for sex to strangers or to other family members was to secure drugs. Now that's changed over the last four years. Four years ago, there's just not been much study of this, but four years ago, it was more often seen as economic motives. So what we have to do as responsible Christians is we have to start looking more seriously at the families who have the vulnerabilities of economics, of substance abuse, of other criminality, of domestic violence, dysregulation of those children being in any kind of consistent schooling, or other forms of social services. And these are the populations that at least statistically present as uh, being highly vulnerable. But as I continue the scare tactics, but it's all based on data, is that we also know that it, it is the affluent families too. We have to understand that the demand comes from that motive of entitlement. And that is really at the root of the demand side. I want, and therefore I should have. And if you add to that, and then I also have the means and the opportunity. So I have the financial means, or I have the opportunity means, um, then the formula is becoming complete. And so we have, from a victim perspective, we have girls in affluent areas like Prospect, Kentucky, who are going online with some of the contemporary technologies and they are selling pictures of themselves, some of them not what we would call pornographic at all, pictures of their feet, because there are people who have an appetite for that and they will pay for that. And we've got girls who have said, why should I go to college? I'm making more money now selling pictures of my feet than I can by going out and getting a job. So we've created structures and a culture that says the child's economic value is more important irregardless, excuse me, regardless of what her current economic situation might be. So she she could be a girl in, you know, an impoverished part of Kentucky or a very affluent and because of the opportunity of the technology that we also haven't checked we also haven't done things like age verification. We haven't done restrictions. We've got parents who are buying smartphones for kids who are as young as eight and 10 years old. And with not a consideration of opening that child up to the portal of every pedophile in the globe. Hi, this is Richard Nelson with the Commonwealth Policy Center. We're working to strengthen the sanctity of human life, religious freedom, man-woman marriage, and fiscal integrity. If this program better helps you to understand the issues of the day from a biblical worldview, we're glad, but we need your help. Our work here at CPC is supported by people just like you. 
We're here to help those in the Christian community better understand how the faith applies to all areas of life, including the moral, social, and political realms. Please consider a contribution today. Simply go to our website at commonwealthpolicycenter.org and make a donation. And thanks in advance for your support. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with Gene Allard, and we are talking about child sex trafficking, not just at the international level, but right here in Kentucky. And Gene, before we started the program, I had shared with you something that I learned wasn't uh, documented, but it's a, it's a something I hear repeated, and that's that because Kentucky has the Kentucky Derby uh, every May, it is one of the highest trafficked area for child sex trafficking in the country, but you said that that's not documented. What do we know about Kentucky and child sex trafficking? And it, does it happen at the Kentucky Derby? Well, here's the problem. We can't say it doesn't, right? Because we're talking about a criminal enterprise that is extraordinarily secret. And you mentioned Jeffrey Epstein. So we're talking about, when you talk about the Derby, you're talking about people of affluence and power who have the ability to cover their deeds and keep things secret. And so, you know, the same is true again. So we can't say in the negative that it doesn't exist, but there is not the data that says that's the epicenter or that's the climactic moment in the calendar for the state of Kentucky. There have been stings uh, that have been conducted by law enforcement uh, on the farm and machinery show. And there have been cases of child trafficking that have been identified through that and adults as well. And so there is uh, certainly data and case evidence to suggest that that is a congregational experience where we're talking about um, whether it's the stereotype boys will be boys or whether it's what happened at the farm show stays at the farm show, right? Any of those kinds of cultural conditions. What we do know about Kentucky is that we have a lot of vulnerability factors. And I just pulled some statistics. Um, we have 33% of Kentucky children live in homes that have income insecurity. We have, uh, Kentucky has is number six in terms of the highest teen pregnancy rate in the nation. Kentucky is fourth highest in teen overdoses, and that's 2021 data. Um, Kentucky is fourth in refugee arrivals per capita. Uh, and so, but that, so that's another vulnerable population. And so what we have to look at, we know we have pockets of profound poverty. We know the fentanyl crisis has overtaken great parts of, uh, of the state. And so what these are is what we call sort of a brewing perfect storm for us to say we have to be sober-minded about the fact that people will be exploited to obtain, whether it's the drugs or the economic means, or to get myself out of a situation of vulnerability. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a very strident uh, anti-trafficking effort in the state of Kentucky. And I think that's an area of opportunity. Awareness, as you've mentioned, needs to continue. We need to get into the schools and be able to have conversations um, with children who may not call it trafficking, but they know that things are happening and they know, you know, they, they have the language for it. It just might not be the adult language. Um, we have seen in the reports that have gone out of DCBS um, that 60% of the child trafficking cases in Kentucky are at the hands of the caregiver. 
And so we have to, again, look at those vulnerable families if we're going to do anything about prevention. You know, I I talk often with uh, churches who are motivated. They want to be able to help and they want to end demand or they want to be able to work on prevention. And my answer is always the same. If you want to make a concerted effort um, to reduce trafficking, then support single mothers and their children, and you will make a tremendous impact. And then secondarily, but perhaps parallel, let's reach out to the men and the boys who are really struggling with pornography uh, and their own sexual identity and how they see themselves as men, um, because we're eyes are off the ball on that. And those two efforts would go a long way to reducing the problem, not only in Kentucky, but nationally. Gene, thanks for bringing up that issue of pornography. As I mentioned earlier, our culture is awash in it, and not just the um, in the dark places on the web, but softcore pornography is. I read uh, news sources across the web. Some of these sources will advertise, I don't know, Victoria's Secret, where there's <laughs> pictures of scantily clad women that I really don't need to be seeing. I've not asked for it, but it just pops up when I'm on, even on conservative websites. So we are inured, if you will, to a culture that just, it puts us in front of men. And as a guy, uh, and you don't even have to be a guy to know that the research shows that we are very visual. Um, There's parts of our brain that are stimulated by um, images of women. And uh, as a Christian man, I know that this is a something I need to be mindful of and I need to guard myself against because it's very easy to get pulled into that, to look just a little bit long. And um, yet this is where our culture is. And this is stuff that's being put in front of our young people every day. Um, Pornography is one area that we need to address as a people. It's not normal to exploit women. It's not healthy for a man uh, or for their soul to feed on that, to, to lust on that. It's a poor substitute for true relationships. And we need to find our voice and to begin speaking on this. And then also to make the connection of when you get on that path of where this will lead. Gene, you, you talked about just a few minutes ago about the susceptibility of certain populations. You talked about kids that <clears throat> in Kentucky that are in poverty kids that are in unstable homes. You talked about um, migrant resettlement here, but what really throws me is the situation where there are affluent young people, young women who are brought into this. So there really isn't necessarily a single category. And I would, I, I think you can make the case though that the impoverished and those coming from unstable homes and those that have parents who are addicted to drugs, yes, they're very susceptible. But what do you do with this category of those in Northern um, Virginia, where you said 800 kids were trafficked? These are kids that are in good homes, and they purportedly had strong families. I want to pull back on good, because we don't know what that means to us, or at least we each think we know what that means. We think when we say that family is secure and intact, that that means that that child is also being brought up to understand their worth that they get the necessary parental attention. You can have very affluent homes where the children are being ignored. We've had girls in our program, we ran a residential program for 13 years, and we had girls out of very affluent homes who were ignored. And so they went online and they found relationships where they could take a walk on the wild side or date somebody that would upset their mother. 
And that's a different kind of dynamic than that, you know, purported sort of good home. There was a study that was done. It was uh, produced about four years ago. Uh, it's fascinating. And it says that only um, 33% of boys understand what the word consent means. Now, that's a parental problem, right? That's are we teaching our children what boundaries are, what consent means, what is bodily integrity? Are we teaching those things? And so there's a there are other factors, I think, at play here. Um, also, right now, as I said earlier, we are teaching children that they are commodities from a very young age, right? In foster care. The children in foster care have a price tag and they learn that very early on, that when they go to a home, somebody gets paid. And when they go to another home, somebody gets paid. And so for a trafficker to say, we're going to make money off of you, that child's going to say, yeah, that's been my whole life. I understand that. I've been commodified since I was, you know, in, in the system. So that's an enculturation that I think we have to look at. Economics is a part of it. But what are we saying fundamentally about the value of a human life? And we know that that goes off into all kinds of dangerous tendrils. We also are challenged by the fact that pornography does is not a, a respecter of persons either. There are studies that say 68% of youth pastors are addicted to porn. And these are the individuals that we are expecting to pour into our children in reinforcement of the parental responsibility with that moral message. But how's that pastor going to do that when he knows what he's going back and doing or doing on his phone? So we have, we have a crisis, um, but we understand that it points back to some fundamental truths that we have stopped, um, we've stopped focusing on, the fundamental truths of the value of human life, of the necessity for restraint, right? of the fact that you are not entitled just because you have the means, um, that people are not their price tag. These are, these, are, these are truths we have to reclaim. And these are truths that the church has articulated from the very beginning. Think of when the church was birthed in the first century in where Rome ruled, there was a price tag on people. Those who were wealthy uh, and had status, they could feed their lusts. There were children were marketed, if you will. Human life was cheap. Uh, and the church stood against that. The church took in the young infant who was left on the street corner and left to die. Church took in slaves. The church gave value to women, uh, upheld the dignity of women and second-class citizens. And perhaps we're in a similar age today where the church needs to revisit first principles of the idea that we are made in the image of God, from that newborn child to that woman to all the way to the end of life's journey. Perhaps it sounds like we really need to find our voice and to find out who we are as God's people and to find our voice when it comes to speaking to these issues. So, Jean, do you find that churches are responsive to your ministry? Are churches engaging this issue? Where is the church in regards to human trafficking? Well, I've been in this field since 2007, and uh, as is normal for the church, we're usually first in and last out in, in a crisis, and that is to our credit. And so it largely was the church uh, universal that has been first in on this issue uh, and willing to take on sort of the long suffering of the work. And 
right now in uh, in America, there are 234 shelters that serve victims of trafficking, and 66% of those shelters are Christian in their identity. So we do have um, some foothold in this space as far as being in the caregiving space, uh, but we also have up against that the complicity of participation in, in pornography, in these sinful activities, and in, frankly, um, I think to our greatest shame, the fact that we're turning a blind eye to things that are happening in culture. Uh, and we're saying, oh, well, we just want to be in the church, but we don't want to be engaged in politics. So we don't want to be engaged in civic matters. Uh, and so I'm grateful for organizations like yours that are building the bridges there because this is what we end up, end up with when the moral message is not a part of that uh, legislative and regulatory discourse. So I think where the church has been fervent is in wanting to jump in and save people. That's a good and a bad. That's a good and a bad. Uh, and I remember the um, now famous phrase from Ernie Allen, who was the executive director for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And he said, you know, your fits of passion serve no one. It is only in your sustained presence that we truly make a difference. And that has rung in my ear for 17 years, and I have seen it to be empirically true that the survivors that I've walked alongside for five, seven plus years um, are the ones for whom there is a deep entrenchment of change. And it is because somebody walked alongside them. So let's go back to what I said at the very beginning. The number one form of recruitment is based on a relational deficit. The greatest thing the church could do is step into those voids and do the ministry of presence, which is what we should be doing better than anybody else. I want to give your listeners a bit of encouragement because I know that there's been a heavy cast on our conversation, necessarily so. We just completed, in fact, we published this week a study, and it's available for free on our website. Um, we did a study because there had been criticism that of those uh, shelters that are Christian in their identity, that they were probably forcing religion on survivors and they were, you know, being oppressive with religion. And we've heard those criticisms of the church in the past. And so we said, what's the best way for us to get to the bottom line of whether or not that's true? And that was to ask the survivors themselves. So we engaged in a inquiry with survivors who were currently in programs or who had historically been in a restorative care program. And we asked them about their experiences in faith-based programs, and the results were overwhelmingly encouraging. What we learned was over 70% of survivors said that they intentionally chose to go to a Christian program because they wanted to reclaim the faith of their childhood, or they wanted to become a person of faith. And so that is a willful act that they knew viscerally Spirituality has something to offer me. Faith has something to offer me and I want it. And so that's choice, which is a big part of trauma-informed care principles. We were also encouraged to learn when we asked them, of the various faith practices you were exposed to, what was the most efficacious? What had the most impact on your healing? You're not going to guess, but maybe you will. Bible study was the number one that they said being able to get into the Bible, 
to understand the Bible, to have the Bible read to me, to read it myself, uh, to, to hear what God had to say about me, to hear what God had to say about forgiveness was transformational. And we as Christians know that to be true. And so we should double down on the effectiveness of the word when survivors are saying that made the greatest impact. The second most powerful influence in their life was being around Christians, being around people who walked it out, being around people who were in the trench with them, willing to put up with their mess and walk that journey as long as it's going to take. We asked them what they thought of Christians before they entered the program, and we asked what they thought about Christians on the other side of their program. And you might imagine that a lot of the comments about pre-program identity was, well, we thought Christians were judgmental. We thought Christians wouldn't have anything to do with us. They're the people who look at us funny if we walk into church. But on the flip side, after having been in the company, in relationship with each other and doing that journey together, they said, my favorite quote out of that study was, what I learned was Christians do crap. That wasn't her word. Christians do crap too, but we forgive each other and we move on. And I thought, man, if you learned that lesson, then you've learned a great deal about the gospel through the people who are trying to live it. So I commend that study. It's called Faith Practices. It's on our website. It's free for download. It's a great uh, work of encouragement to those of us who are trying to work with survivors from a Christian worldview. Gene, I'm so encouraged to hear the results of that uh, survey. That's encouraging to me. You'd mentioned too that two thirds of trafficking work is it's Christian based. But you also said something recently too that Christians should be careful when donating to large anti-trafficking organizations. Tell us more what you mean about that. Yeah, and that goes back to the Ernie Allen quote of sort of fits of passion because, and you mentioned the amount of money that was raised from the recent film. Uh, and I think that those are catalytic moments. They're inspiring moments. They might be fits of passion moments. And but what we have to do is be good stewards of the financial resources that God has given us. And so we've put together, for example, an education program, so short video for donors who want to give to this movement. And it's just, it, it's not self-serving at all. It says, what questions should you ask about programs in your community? What should you uh, want to know about the work that they're doing? And what are reasonable questions? And what's the due diligence that you should do? Um, because we do need the uh, financial support um, 89% of the shelters operate purely on charity and uh, the survivors don't have any money. And so we are dependent on the goodwill of givers, but we need to make good investments with God's resources. What are some things that people can look for? We've got many uh, people tuned in who are concerned about this issue. What are some signs that a child is being trafficked? What, what can we look for? Well, I would say that um, it would be my hope that we would look for signs that a child is being groomed before they've actually been uh, exploited, commercially exploited. Uh, the, the fact that the child is being wooed or seduced, uh, groomed, whatever verb is appropriate for you, that's going to look like things like the child distances from uh, activities that they would normally have done. They withdraw from whether that's sports or clubs or the friends groups that they've had. Um, there can be a radical change in music. 
It could be a radical change in um, the company that they keep, their friend group changes, um, creating more secrecy between their family and uh, their sort of the rest of their life. Uh, we are strong believers that parents should have full access to the social media of the child and do the work to understand what that child is doing on the phone. Um, and the games also, the video games, because many of them are portals to communities uh, where pedophiles will hang out. So we have to be wise and understand that the modern day uh, recruiter, exploiter, uh, abuser is going to go where children are and the vast majority of children are online. And so that's the primary battleground. You know, we're not talking about the creepy guy hanging out at the playground as much as we are talking about the hundreds of people, thousands of people who are online and who are making inroads with children. You know, there was a study last beginning of last year uh, that came out and it examined how likely is it that a child who is conversing with someone online, a stranger, but they are having a chat or direct message, and they are having a conversation with a person, over 35% of the time, that child will leave their home and go meet that person. So a third of those children, not only, we'll, we'll say 100% of those children lack the discretion, but a third of those children will put themselves in harm's way by meeting that person incarnate, live. And that is terrifying. And so we have to put the speed bumps in place by knowing where our children are, particularly online and who they're associating with. There are other things that we look for. Does the child acquire things that they don't have the means to acquire? If you have a child that is otherwise impoverished and they all of a sudden have really nice tennis shoes or you know clothing or whatever it might be, that a new phone, multiple phones, those are types of things that should at least be making us concerned about how did the child secure um, those assets. Jane, in 2018, you created the Institute for Shelter Care, and we're coming to a close. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to uh, tell us more about this, uh, the Institute for Shelter Care. Why did you start it? What do you do? How can people support you? Well, as I mentioned, I started in 2007 when the Lord uh, gave me the privilege of meeting a survivor, and uh, it was Heather that changed the world for me and uh, gave me that holy rage that said, I've got to do something. And that led to starting a residential program. That residential program in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area operated for 13 years. And over that period of time, we were watching the national landscape. And we began to realize in 2016-17 that there was a deficit of care nationally. So we made a, a pivot to become an organization that helps to establish new programs, helps to equip those programs and sustain those programs for the long work. We do a lot of training. We do the research that I've been talking about. Uh, we do bring this community together because this is, this is a long suffering work and it's very, very difficult. Um, there's a fair amount of secondary trauma that comes on behalf of the workers, and so we have to support each other. And so what we're trying to do is to be that organization that is the glue that helps to hold them together, but also prepares them for what is coming next. And we have some massive social change on the horizon in this country that uh, stands to impact human trafficking significantly, not the least of which is what are we up to, eight to 10 million people who have entered this country. 
um, who are incredibly vulnerable and have, have are just beginning to be into those systems of, of compromise. So that's the work that we do. I would say for your listeners, if they are interested in the research, that's available to them for free. If they know of people in their community who want to start an anti-trafficking effort, we would be glad to shepherd them along a pathway uh, and getting them connected and resourced to do that. Certainly the financial support is important to us as well. Um, but we also do a fair amount of education. So let me tell your listeners that we are doing a program. This will be in the Oldham County area on February 24th on the sexualization of our children. And we will be doing a deeper dive on many of the things that you and I have been talking about. And then we will have a forum for discussion where we'll be talking about how parents, grandparents, and concerned citizens can engage, whether that's legislatively, within their families, within their school systems, and who knows, if this uh, program takes off, we'll replicate it in other counties. So we want to help in the Commonwealth, uh, but our primary focus is to equip the Christian response for anti-trafficking nationally. Very good. Jean, I appreciate uh, what you're doing. It's important work. How can somebody get in touch with you if they wanted you to um, speak to their group or if they simply wanted to donate to the Institute for Shelter Care? Well, the website would be the best place to go, and that's just instituteforshelterCare.org. All of our contact information is uh, there. Uh, you're welcome to post that as part of this broadcast as well. If you want to put my contact information, that would be fine, and uh, we would be happy. We would be delighted uh, to have more people engaged in this. Gene Allert, thank you so much for joining us on the Commonwealth Matters. God bless you, and you keep up the good work. Thank you for bringing this to people's attention. If you're enjoying this episode, you can listen to other conversations just like this one on the Commonwealth Matters podcast. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us. This will help you never miss an episode and to help other Kentuckians like you benefit from this program.